very modest temple. It wasn't going to be grand like Solomon's temple. You recall that as in Second Chronicles, that as we saw Solomon in the, in the description of the temple that he built, it was a magnificent structure overlaid with gold, uh, incredible workforce that he raised up, about 180,000 workers that worked on that temple for uh, seven years, and it was absolutely incredible, costly stones and large stones that was used, and gold that overlaid the temple, and in the walls, and even on the floors. So Zerubbabel's temple is going to be a very simple temple compared to what Solomon's building was like. So the older men were weeping because of that, but the younger guys who never saw Solomon's temple, they were rejoicing in what God was doing. And God is going to honor this temple that they build, but it's a great reminder to us that God is still working in our midst. You see, sometimes we get, uh, as we journey through life, we can think what God was doing in my life in the years past, you know, was grand, was glorious. But I want to remind you that God's not through with you. He wants to work in you and through you even today. He wants to use you. And so we need to rejoice in that and not weep over, well, you know, Lord, you're using me in this way yesterday or years ago. But we need to look forward to what the Lord wants to do as we look forward and press forward to the goal of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And that's the mindset that we are to have. So we looked at that in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, of course, we saw that this discouragement would come to uh, the Jews as they would come back to Jerusalem. It's already difficult conditions. It's already hard. But we see that those who were in the land during the captivity, some of the earliest of the Samaritans, came to Zerubbabel and Joshua and said, listen, we want to help you guys build the temple. And it was Zerubbabel that said, no, you're not going to help us build the house of the Lord. And it wasn't that Zerubbabel was being rude to the Samaritans, but he knew that they would try to compromise the work that needed to be done, try to do the work in a way that would benefit them. And so they were going to be committed to what God had called them to do. And because of that, what that would start is those that would come, as we saw in chapter 4, that would trouble them, discourage them, and, and have counselors come against them. And we're reminded that as the Lord is working in our lives, as we are a part of this living temple that is being built, because the Lord is building a greater temple than the first temple or the second temple uh, that was eventually a grand temple as Herod the Great would expand it right before the birth of Jesus and continue through the life of Jesus. And then it would be destroyed in 70 AD. But we have a third temple that has been built, and that is living stones, the church being fitted together. And as we are a part of the work of God, know that discouragement will come to us, trouble will come to us by the enemy, the world will trouble us, and there will be those that will uh, try to, uh, you know, speak against us and, and use words against us. So we need to be encouraged in the fact that the Lord desires to continue to work in our lives when that happens. And I think that's what we're going to see in the text here tonight as we continue to go through it. So here it is. I'm going to reach verse 24 of chapter 4 because I think that verse 24 really goes with chapter 5. But thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then the prophet Haggai, chapter 5, and Zechariah, the son of Ido, 
prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. In verse 2, so Zerubbabel, the son of Zealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Zozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, a couple of things here. As we discussed a little bit last week, what happened historically is 536 B.C., the 70 years of captivity is over. Cyrus says, you guys can go back, rebuild the house of the Lord. That's what they would do. They begin to uh, lay the foundation of the temple in 535 B.C. And, and as the temple foundation was laid, that's where we saw that uh, the older men were weeping, but yet the younger men were rejoicing in what God was doing. It was a wonderful time. It was a time of new beginnings. It was a time of, of we're back and God is going to use us once again and the temple of God is going to be rebuilt. But yet what happened during that time of about 535 BC to 520 BC, which would be in the second year of Darius or Darius, however you want to say it, when he became the king of Persia, the work of the temple stopped. And the reason that the work of the temple stopped was because of the enemies of the Jews that came and discouraged them. And what they would do is not only trouble them and discourage them, but writing letters to the kings. And in chapter 4, we saw a reference to that. There was a letter that was written to uh, Xerxes. There was a letter that was written to Artaxerxes later on that we saw last time. But also, there's a letter that was written to Darius during that time when the temple, the work was stopped. And Darius here, we're going to see, he became king in 521 B.C. So in the second year of his reign, 520, they began to rebuild the temple because in chapter 6 here, we're going to see that Darius is going to reaffirm the words of Cyrus and say, it's okay for you guys to build the temple. But here are some guys that are going to write a letter to him saying, who gave these Jews permission? You need to check to see if Cyrus really gave that decree. So here is the work of the temple being stopped for 15 years. And you know that it was Zerubbabel that had to be discouraged during that time. I mean, they come back, he's leading the people, they lay the foundation of the temple, the altar has been made, they're all ready to go, and all of a sudden the work stops for 15 years. And I'm sure that Zerubbabel must have felt like, man, I'm really failing the Lord. And I'm sure Joshua, the high priest, was feeling the same way as well. Because you see, as we learn here in the first couple of verses of chapter 5, there was a couple prophets that were on the scene. One was Haggai and one was Zechariah. And as you read their books at the end of the Old Testament, the last three books of, Hag of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those prophets were on the scene after the Babylonian captivity. And Zechariah and Haggai are here at this time when the house of the Lord is supposed to be built. And as you read their books, Zechariah, he was one that had incredible visions. And Zechariah was one that was more of an encourager. As you read that book, for example, he had a series of visions, like eight visions in that book. It's an incredible prophetic book that talks about the day of the Lord and what's going to happen uh, when the second coming of Jesus Christ takes place. It's a great, great prophetic book of the Old Testament. 
But in those visions that Zechariah had, like in Zechariah chapter 3, there's Joshua the high priest that's standing before the Lord, and there is Satan standing next to Joshua, and it is Satan that's accusing Joshua. And we know that the enemy, Satan, one of the ways that he discourages us and troubles us is we desire to serve the Lord and to walk with the Lord, to live for the Lord, is he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night, Revelation chapter 12. In other words, he comes along and he whispers in our ear, what makes you think that God wants to use you? God doesn't love you. You know, how can you say that you're a Christian? And he accuses us day and night, just coming against us, having us to doubt uh, all kinds of things. You know, Lord, do you love me? And you must be disgusted with me. And, and he does that. He wants us to think that God doesn't want to use us. God doesn't love us. Uh, God has no plan for us. He's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. And that's what Satan was doing to Joshua. As Joshua was standing before the Lord in that vision. And in Zechariah chapter 3, it's an incredible picture of our salvation because Joshua, he's there standing, and it says that initially has filthy garments on. Now, to the people who would look at Joshua the high priest, if he had his priestly garments on, they would be very beautiful. You know, with the breastplate and the 12 stones and beautiful garments that were there. And the people would look at Joshua and say, oh, he's so religious, he's so righteous, look how holy he is. But as he stood before the Lord, his garments were filthy, they were dirty. Isaiah the prophet says that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. And it's a picture of how you and I cannot stand before the Lord in our own righteousness and say, Lord, I've earned eternal life. I've earned heaven. Look at my righteousness because it won't work. Our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. We cannot stand before the Lord in and of ourselves and boast about our righteousness because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all have sinned. We've all been stained by sin in our lives. That's why Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. And it is absolutely amazing that as I talk with people more and more that say that they are Christians, that they don't understand that simple fact of the gospel message is that the gospel is for sinners and all of us are sinners. And matter of fact, the gospel message gets kind of confusing sometimes to Christians because there are those who are trying to present the gospel without the cross and the need of repentance and knowing that you are a sinner and you need to confess that. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. Because we need forgiveness of sin. And he died for our sins. And there's absolutely no hope for any of us if we don't come and surrender to Jesus and realize that he has done the work and provided forgiveness of sin as we come in faith and trusting in the finished work of the cross and that he rose from the grave. That's what brings justification, our faith and trust in him alone. And you see, sometimes people will put their trust in that which cannot save them. Paul the apostle at the end of the book of Galatians says that I boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and the cross it was Paul that realized because of what Jesus Christ had done for him and what he has done for us, that that's where we boast in. In Jesus Christ and him crucified, we will not stand before God and say, look at my righteousness, Lord. 
I deserve eternal life. I'm so righteous. So there is Joshua. His garments are filthy. And Jesus rebukes Satan and said, take those garments off and give him clean garments. And you see, as we're born again, then we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? It was in John chapter 3 that it was Nicodemus, that religious man who was the master teacher of Israel, that came to Jesus, a man who was the master teacher of Israel. He was dedicated all his life to teaching his students about the law and about the sacrifices and, and, and keeping of the law. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we know that you're God and, and come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless he is from God. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you. Jesus didn't say they. He said, you, Nicodemus. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, know this, that as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I'm sure that Nicodemus didn't quite understand that until it was at the end of Jesus' life that we know that Nicodemus was at the cross. And I'm sure he realized that I understand now that this Jesus, the Messiah, has died for my sins because Nicodemus was with Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body of Jesus and prepared the body of Jesus for burial. So we come we recognize our need for Jesus to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. So Joshua would be encouraged and a powerful vision that would be given to him. But here's the thing. Satan, he accuses us day and night. And Revelation chapter 12 goes on to tell us that Satan was overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus gives us victory, doesn't he? Because he died for our sins and he rose again. And the word of testimony. And when the enemy comes along and saying that God doesn't love you and you're worthless and you're spiritual waste and God doesn't want to work in your life and he's not going to forgive you, we can overcome the accuser of the brethren by the word of testimony, by going to the word of God and saying the Lord does love me and the Lord will never leave me or forsake me and I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and we can claim those promises that are given to us. So Joshua would be encouraged. And then Zechariah in chapter 4, we talked a little bit about it last week, that as Zechariah was told, that Zechariah, as he would be disappointed, at Joshua knowing that you know, the people are starting to turn inwardly, they're, they're doing their own thing. Zerubbabel, he's frustrated because the work of the temple stopped. And the word is given to Zerubbabel by Zechariah, go and tell him that the hands that laid the foundation is going to finish the temple and don't despise the day of small things. And you go and tell Zerubbabel that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that's a word for all of us in our lives, and it's a word for us here at Calvary Chapel. That brings me great comfort because I know that I don't have to strain and strive and struggle and try to connive and all of this, that I can just allow the Lord to work in my life. And allow the Lord to work through me a work of the Spirit. You see, it was Paul, he's going to say to those Galatian believers when we get there in a couple weeks, that he's going to say to them right away as he starts the epistle, that I marvel that you move away so soon from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. 
There were the Judaizers that were coming behind the ministry of Paul the Apostle and saying, you Christians can't consider yourself justified and saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You have to be circumcised. And there are those that will come along to you and to me and say, you're not really a Christian unless you worship on this certain day, the true Sabbath day. You're not a Christian unless you've done this act. You are baptized or do something else. You've got to add to the cross of Calvary. And Paul would say, no, that no man is justified by the works of the law or by any deeds. But again, taking them back to the grace of Jesus Christ. And then Paul would write to them and he would say to them, do you really believe that you were justified when you had that operation? When you were cut, do you really believe that? That that which began in the spirit, are you going to try to perfect in the flesh? And I know that I don't have to, in my life, try to perfect my worthiness, you know, try to get God to approve me more, try to get God to love me more by the works of the flesh. I can just walk in the Spirit and say, Lord, you work through me and in me. Yes, I want to please the Lord with my life. Yes, I want to walk in obedience. But I know that the Lord loves me so much and he's always loved me because he sent his son to die for me. So why what has begun in the Spirit and coming and being born again by the Spirit of God, am I going to try to perfect it in the flesh? And I know that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. And that brings great comfort to me to know that, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, in the life of my ministry, in the life of this church, that the work that you have begun, that you're going to bring it to completion. Because it is you that works in us both the will and to do of your good pleasures. So here's Zechariah. He was an encourager. Haggai, he was an exhorter. He exhorts the people. He comes and he says, listen, you guys are supposed to be doing the work of the Lord and you need to get back to it. And what you've done is you've gone and you're, you're living a good life. You're, you're building your panel houses. And what had happened during that time that they were discouraged, they just kind of said, forget this. We're going to focus on our own homes and building summer homes. And, and your homes are beautiful while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. And you see, that can happen to us. We, we're walking with the Lord. We're serving the Lord. And we're excited about the things of the Lord. And all of a sudden, we get discouraged somehow. Maybe we're a little bit troubled about something. And and, and the accuser, the brethren, is really hammering us. And we say, forget this. I'm, you know, through serving the Lord. I don't want to do this anymore. And we become inwardly focused. And we begin to just focus on our thing and what we want to do. And we forget about that the Lord continues to want to use us and work in us and to strengthen us and to grow us. So here is Haggai and Zechariah giving this word uh, to the people. Get back to building the house of the Lord. And they would do that in 520 B.C. It took four years for them to build the temple. And finally it got completed in 516 B.C. But what happened is the prophets here, I want to make one more point and then we're going to move on, that they were with them, helping them. In other words, the prophets rolled up their sleeves. They were not only given the words of the Lord to the people and the commandments of the Lord to them, but they were also helping out as well. You know, I see that in the life of Paul the Apostle, that he was one that he would say to the people, follow my example, follow my manner of life. He was a servant, 
and he led by example. And we know that Jesus, he never told his disciples to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. And a good leader and a good, you know, uh, ministry person, whether you're ministering to your children or whether you're ministering to those in the church, is going to be one that's going to lead by example. And that's what these guys did. They just not only gave the work of the Lord and said, okay, get the work and kick up their feet, but they rolled up their sleeves and they helped out as well. And we read in verse 3, at that time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? And then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eyes of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. And then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. So we see here, once again, the work of God is going forth and, and they are opposing this work, the governor. They're saying, who told you you can do this work and build this temple? And we do see that throughout the scriptures that whenever God is working, there is that opposing of that work. And it's true in your life and in my life. And don't be, you know, um, you know thrown f- for a loop when that happens. And sometimes... That will throw people for a loop, Christians. Man, you're excited about the Lord, you're growing in the Lord, and you're beginning to serve the Lord, and all of a sudden, something comes along or someone comes along to discourage you or to trouble you. And the first indication and and response can be, this is it, I'm going to quit, I'm going to throw in the towel. Don't throw in the towel, but allow the Lord to just work through the situation and grow you, and you'll see his faithfulness because he is again going to finish that work that he began in you. So Tataniah here was the governor of region, and Darius, of course, is the king of, of the Medes and the Persian. And notice that in verse 3, again, they said, who commanded you to build this temple? Uh, and the answer is God did. When God commands us to do something, then we obey him. And when God tells us to do something, we don't have to fear man. You see, it's like the apostles that were in Jerusalem in the early days of the church, and they were arrested, and the religious council, the Sanhedrin council, said, who told you guys to spread the name of Jesus? We told you not to do it. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and they said, listen, if we have the choice to obey man or God, we're going to obey God. We can't but, you know, talk about the things that we have seen and heard. And they were going to obey God and be a witness. People sometimes might come to you and say, who do you think that you are to minister in this way, to minister to this group of people, to to have this Bible study at the lunch break at work? Who do you think you are to, to, to do this or that, or live in this way? Well, God has told me to do it, and I'm going to be faithful to God. So here, Tatanea, he tattles on the people of Judah, and the names are given in this letter to Darius as to not uh, give any of the king of Persia to think that they were rebelling, and God was blessing them so they could continue the work. And the work continues in our lives as well as we just trust him and we're obedient to the work that he's called us to do. In verse 6, here's a copy of the letter that Tatanaya sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Seth are Bosnai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. 
Verse 7, they sent a letter in him in which was written thus to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple which was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. So the governor's letter addressed to Darius and we know that as he says, we asked for the names and they answered that we're servants of the God of heaven and earth. And I think that's a good answer. When people ask you and me, why are you doing this work? Why are you doing this thing? Our answer can be because I'm a servant of the God of heaven and earth. That's why I'm doing it. You know, it's a privilege and such a marvelous opportunity for us to serve the Lord. And wherever God has you and wherever you're planted, whatever gifts he gives to you, opportunities that he opens up for you, whatever he places on your heart, And ministry is doing very practical things, ministering in your home, raising your children in the ways of the Lord, raising your grandchildren in the ways of the Lord, ministering to those that you have opportunity to minister to, using the gifts that God has given to you. I pray that we would see that as a privilege and an opportunity to serve the true and the living God who made heaven and earth. Do you know that he wants to use you He wants to use you where you're planted, in your workplace, in your family, in the body of Christ. To be a servant of the Most High God, that's the greatest title that any of us would ever have and could ever have. Sometimes we get titles in the world, whatever it might be, and, you know, we're very proud of that title or, you know, we, we love that title or we work to get that title. But the greatest title is I'm a child of God and I'm a servant of the living God. Those are the greatest titles that we can have. So that's what they said. They answered, hey, we're, we're ones that we serve the Lord of, God, of heaven and earth. In verse 12 here, let it be, uh, verse 12, but because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. So they recount their history. Hey, we rebelled against the Lord, and, and we were led away into captivity. They admit their sin. In verse 13, however, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God, and also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried to the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Shazbazar, whom he had made governor. So Bazar is just um, what scholars believe is another name for Zerubbabel. So after 70 years of captivity, Cyrus made this decree, this decree that we saw in chapter 1 to rebuild the temple. The articles of the temple that were in Solomon that were taken to Babylon were brought back and given to uh, Zerubbabel to put into this new temple. In verse 15, And he said to him, Take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. 
And then the same Shezbazar came out and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction, and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So they write this letter, listen, Darius, you need to check the records to see if about 15 years previously that Cyrus actually made this decree that they can rebuild this temple. You need to check the records there in Babylon, verse 17. So chapter 6, King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, and at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was thus written thus. So in chapter 6 here, as they now do this diligent search to see if Cyrus made a decree for the Jews to return and build the temple. It took diligence for Darius to search it. Because verse 17 of chapter 5, you need to search the records in Babylon. Chapter 6, verse 1, that they search the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And where did they find this decree? They found it at an ancient city called Akmetha. Now you think, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal about it. When you really think about it and stop and ponder this, the remote ancient city of Akmetha is about 300 miles from Babylon. And somehow they found it in the archives there, the decree which Cyrus had made, which means that Darius, he didn't give up. He didn't just search there in Babylon. He said, I've got to search. We've got to find this decree. And it took some work and it took some real diligence for him to do this, to find this decree. How can we make application for our own lives here tonight? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's a, such an important word for you and for me today. That we need to be ones to be diligent, approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, I think that's being lost more and more in the church today. I think that more and more in the church today, what we're seeing is those who say Bible study isn't important. It isn't really a priority. We don't really want to study the Bible. Uh, we want, you know, feel-good messages or motivational messages with a little bit of Bible in it. And unfortunately, that is a growing trend that I see in the church today. You and I are told to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God, a worker, that is rightly dividing the word of truth and how important, especially in the day in which we're living in. You know, one of the things that uh, I'm going over with uh, one of the guys in the churches, we've been going over a chapter of Proverbs every week, and it's so wonderful to go through it and how we're reminded in Proverbs how valuable it is to have God's wisdom in our life and then having that wisdom being worked out in our lives how we speak and how we act and how we work and all those things, how we do business. 
that is so valuable. It's more precious than being a wealthy man. It's more precious than all the gold that you can have. It's more precious than having the, the greatest titles, having God's wisdom that is in our lives. And the way to be wise is study the word of God. And as you become wise, that you're like a, a well of, of you know, living water and, and free, being able to be drawn from. Listen, you want to be used of the Lord, any of us. The way that we can be used of the Lord is you be a man or woman of the word of God as well as a man or woman of prayer and a man or woman of humility and seeking the Lord. But you be a man or woman of the word of God and people are going to come to you to draw from you because you have that living water in you and you have the word of God in you to be able to water and refresh others. So be a workman. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent in searching the scriptures in your own life. And here, this was a diligent search to find his decree. And we need to be searching the scriptures so we know the commandments of what God has given to us. We can know the truths that are given to us. And we can know the wisdom of God that we can tuck away in our heart and then have it worked out in our lives. So the decree was found, the scroll of the decree of Cyrus. And we read in, in verse 3, as, uh, the record was thus written, In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offer sacrifices, and let the foundations of it firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, and its width, 60 cubits with three rows, verse 4, of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expense be paid from the king's treasury and also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be restored and taken back to the temple which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. And we see here that the decree which we saw in chapter 5 is rediscovered and, and uh, recovered. Not only were they given permission to rebuild the temple, but the King Cyrus said, I, I found, I, I'm going to fund that is the money to rebuild the temple. And the treasuries are to go back to that temple that were brought from Nebuchadnezzar. So here this decree rediscovered, uncovered. You know, isn't it a delight when... You just are one that you're just continuing through the Word of God, having your morning devotions, having Bible study, coming and learning on Wednesday nights, you know, going through the Old Testament, going through the New Testament as we do on Sunday mornings. And I think a lot of us that are here, we've read books of the Bible before, but isn't it wonderful when we go back and read those books once again or restudy them, that you rediscover, re-uncover the truths and the principles and the decrees that are given there? Isn't it wonderful? I know that every time I'm, I'm doing in my own devotion the book of Matthew, and I've read Matthew, I don't know, probably a hundred times before. But I can go back to the book of Matthew and just reading it and once again just being refreshed and being reminded of the truths of God and the sayings of Jesus and, and, the, and the commands that are given there and the decrees that are given. And it's the same with us as we continue to study the scriptures. And verse 6, Now therefore Tataniah, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar, Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. 
and let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. So governor, make sure that you stay away from the work of the rebuilding of the temple. You need to leave it alone. Now we read this and we applaud this. Yeah, that's the way to get them, Darius. You tell them, stay away. Darius is being very firm. And then we're going to see what happens if anybody interferes with the work. It's not a pretty sight here. The consequences of it. But I do want to bring a little bit of application to us. Bring it home a little bit closer. Because sometimes when God is working in an individual or in a ministry, sometimes we can look at that work and, and we think, well, why is that being done? Or why are they doing this? And we can actually come against that work or meddle with it. And we need to be careful and go to the Lord. Even parents, as we raise our children in the ways of the Lord, we want what's best for them. We love our children. We, we want them to be educated. We want them to do well in life. But I know as a parent of four kids, you know, sometimes as they, they grow, I can think this is really what I would love to have for my kids. I would love for all my kids to get married, live about two blocks from me, have lots of grandkids, you know, kind of that deal. And we all live happily ever after, you know. Or, you know, I thought, you know, for a while, if one of my kids were planted in the right place, like one in Cody, Wyoming, one in Buffalo, Wyoming, where the best fly fishing is, then I can go up there, you know, they can make me dinner, I can stay for a month, you know, just, you know, those kinds of dreams. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that does that. <laughs> but we, we have these, you know, aspirations and dreams for our kids as we're molding them and then also we're unfolding them, seeing how God has made them, but, but what we know that we need to do is let God work in their lives in the way that he wants to work. And usually that's not going to be what we think sometimes or what we want. Maybe it might be closely correlated to what we desire, but you see, for my kids, I want them to be able to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, where is it that you want me to go? What is it that you want me to do? And to encourage them in that, because I know that the Lord is going to do the very best for them and have the best life for them, more than dad could ever dream up. And if God is sending them in a direction that I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, Lord, that I know that I need to be careful. I want to give them wise counsel, but I also know there may come a time where God's going to say, leave it alone. And let me do what I want to do in their lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that takes real prayer and discernment and wisdom in that. Yes, we want to give them godly counsel. Yes, we want to be there to support them. Yes, we want them to, to encourage them. But there comes a time when their faith is their own and they need to search the Lord in what they need to do and where they need to go. And sometimes it's going to be a lot different than what we would think. At least that's what I suspect with my kids. And perhaps many of you have found out with your own children. Whatever it might be, sometimes we think, Lord, why are you working in this person this way or in this ministry that way? And we don't like it. Or, you know, things change. And we need to make sure that we just allow the Lord to do what it is that he's going to do. And that we are there to support and to affirm 
and to just rest in what God is doing in the lives of the people that are linked to us. So anyway, you guys, make sure that you don't meddle in this work. You need to leave it alone. In verse 8, moreover, I issued a decree as to what you should do for the elders of the Jews and for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid by the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river that is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs, for the burnt offerings and the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests, who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. In verse 10, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Verse 11, I also issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuge heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. In other words, don't mess with this work. If you do, you're going to be hung on a pole in your house uh, ash heap. Now that's pretty serious consequences, isn't it? Why is Darius so firm on this and so you know, compassionate about this? That Darius had a man that was his right-hand man that we know from Daniel chapter 6. His name was Daniel. And Daniel had an excellent spirit within him, it says in Daniel chapter 6, and you know the story, how Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and Darius was so upset by that that he had signed that decree that would cause... Daniel to go into the lion's den and he was very upset and the next day he called down in the pit and Daniel said I'm okay and they brought Daniel out and Darius he was so happy he, he was so thrilled and he made a decree that the God of Daniel is the true God and, and he was one that had favor for the God of Israel whether he was a believer or not I don't know for sure but he sure honored the God of Israel. And he was one that said, now you guys, with the work of the temple, you leave it alone. You leave it alone. Don't mess with it. Because one man had a witness, Daniel, who had an excellent spirit within him. And my hope and prayer for all of us that are in this room, that it would be said of us that there's an excellent spirit within that man, that woman. There's just something that's real about them that as they see the reality of Jesus Christ being worked out in our lives. And what a powerful witness it could be to others around us and then affect others as time goes on. Lord, I pray that I have an excellent spirit within me, that people would see the reality of Jesus and the truthfulness of Jesus in my heart. So here he's pretty serious about that decree, isn't he? In verse 13, then Tatanei, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shathabonsnei and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. Of course they did. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah 
and they built and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. We'll see Artaxerxes in a couple weeks when we go into the book of Nehemiah. In verse 15, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the region of King Darius. You know, verse 15, when I read that, just kind of going through it, the temple finished on the third day of the month. On the third day of the month, Jesus, what did he say in John chapter 2? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up, what, in three days. Speaking of the temple of his body. But we finish here tonight, and then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices of the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls and 200 rams and 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they signed the priests to their divisions and the Levites, to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover in the 14th day of the first month, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were uh, ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. In verse 21, and then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the uncleanness or the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria towards them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we know that you're going to finish that work that you've started with us. You're going to finish that work in this house of the Lord that you want to do. So, Lord, may we just rest in that. May we trust in that. And those days of trouble and discouragement will come against us and even fear at times. But, Lord, you've issued a decree from your word that it is you that works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasures. We were created for your good pleasures, Revelation chapter 4. And knowing this, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And we know that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. My hope and prayer, Lord, for us, that each and every day that we are with co-workers, our family, brothers and sisters, that we would rest in the assurance of your love for us, your desire to use us. And Father, that we would know that we have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what has begun in the Spirit, we don't have to try to perfect in the flesh. I pray that tonight, that those who are listening to this message, if there's anybody, if you're listening on live stream, or if you're in the coffee shop or in the sanctuary, that you're not born again by the Spirit of God. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that you would understand that justification or salvation comes by you confessing that you're a sinner because we've all sinned. 
And Jesus came and died for your sins. And you need him as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and, and believe that God raised him from the dead because he's alive, he conquered sin and death, that as you surrender your life to him, then you're forgiven of sin and you have the hope of eternal life and you become a new creature in Christ. All things become new. You can have the wisdom of God and the blessing of God and the strength of God and the comfort of God in your life. You don't have to keep living the way that you're living. Jesus is the only one who died for you and rose from the grave. And he's the only one that can save you and change your heart. Will you allow him to do that tonight? If you've never done that in your heart, today is the day of salvation. And you pray that, God, I believe that Jesus died for me. I confess I'm a sinner. And that he died for my sins on Calvary's cross. Forgive me of my sins. And Jesus, be my personal Lord and Savior all the days of my life. My life is not my own. I surrender to you completely. I turn to you. And I believe you with all of my heart. And I open my heart to you. Thank you for dying for me. And help me to live for you. And to grow in your word. And Lord, thank you for clothing me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for us that we would go out of this place rejoicing because we have you. And even though we may feel hindered or troubled or scared, knowing that your promises are true and that you'll show yourself strong on our behalf. Bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said...